The word of God from Mark. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. All together. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please remain standing for just a moment longer as we commend this time to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, those are sacred words from Mark 14. We ask that your spirit would illumine them. Open our hearts up. May the eyes of our hearts see you. That we'd be understand who you are. Because we really want to know who you are and to seek out your face and to have a relationship with you. And so we pray, Lord, that this time during the preaching of your word, you would make us tender, that we would love you and know you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name's Ronnie, I'm the senior pastor here. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, um, if you're new, for the last, I don't know, 13, 14 weeks, we have been studying the Gospel of Mark. And now, if you're familiar with it, you'll know that the Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters. And in the first eight chapters, Mark is really interested in answering this question. Who is Jesus? And, and right in the middle of the gospel of Mark, right in chapter 8, so right between the two eight-chapter sets, you have this climactic moment with the apostle Peter, and he makes this confession. Because Jesus says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ. That is, you are the king, Messiah, the anointed one. And that's the correct answer. And that confession right there in the middle is like this pivot in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. And from there, Mark will spend the next eight chapters answering this question. If Jesus is the king, well, how does he become the king? If he is, how does he become the king? And this is ironic, of course, because the, the text, the next eight chapters are rushing us to the cross, right? The king is marching to a cross. And so the stories in the second half of Mark will answer that question, which of course find their climax when Jesus, the king, receives his crown. But it's a crown of thorns. The nature of the kingdom of God the nature of Christ's kingdom 
so far in the Gospel of Mark has been really confusing to the disciples. They don't know what to do with everything that Jesus has been teaching them. They, they totally understand what it, would, what it would be like if Jesus just wants to create this rebellion and fight to overthrow Rome, right? But Jesus is planning his kingdom takeover by dying, by dying. And that's really confusing. But there is one disciple who totally gets it. And this morning, we're going to study about this woman who got it. In fact, Jesus is so blessed by this woman that we're going to hear him say, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This woman gets it. Her heart is completely enthralled with Jesus. Her affections are singularly and extravagantly tied to Jesus. And Mark captures the story because he wants us to get it too. When we study this story, as we're going to do in a minute, it should interrogate our heart with these questions. Where is your heart? Where is your affection? Because this story opens us up to the possibility that our love and affection might be misplaced. Why? Because it's possible that we operate using the logic of counterfeit love. And let me explain. In this story, there are two different and competing logics of love. You have the logic of the religious people, and then you have the logic of this woman who loves Jesus. And both sides act and make decisions by the way that they perceive the world, right? Everyone applies some logic that motivates their choices and, the, and their decisions, right? And so that's how we're going to evaluate this text this morning, if you're a note taker. We have two points. We're going to look at the logic of the religious people, and then we're going to look at the logic of this precious woman. And these two systems of logic produce two very different responses to Jesus, and they are intended to confront us. Which one are we? Which one are we? So with that introduction, let's move right into our very first point, the logic of the Pharisees. So our story in Mark 14 picks up just days before Jesus is crucified. This is Holy Week, just a few days. So we're getting very close to the end. There's a hustle and a bustle of Passover in Jerusalem, right? The population in Jerusalem swells up because of Passover. Um, and Jesus is staying just outside of town uh, in this city called Bethany. And Jesus is invited to the home of Simon, presumably because Simon is someone who has been healed of his leprosy by Jesus. Uh, so this guy has the interest of the religious leaders. Now, how come? Well, it's the religious leaders, not doctors. It's the religious leaders who certify who is sick and not sick because that'll let them know who can go to temple or not go to temple. So the religious leaders find themselves with Simon. And, and so Jesus is joining these guys for dinner. There are rules of etiquette, right? How you dress what to say, what gift to bring to the host, you know, kind of the unspoken rules of a dinner party. And then something 
embarrassing happens. And I mean, you guys, this is really cringy, and you're supposed to feel that in the text. A woman self-invites to this dinner and bursts into the party. Now, here's the thing. These dinner parties did not mix genders. It was men with men or women with women. So a woman breaks in with an incredibly expensive alabaster jar of oil. She breaks it, doesn't care that she's mixing company, and pours it over the head of Jesus. And this elicits a very strong reaction from the people who are present in the room. Verse 4 says they were indignant with her. They say, why this waste of perfume? Verse 5, it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now, why are these guys getting so angry? They are responding according to their understanding of what they believe is happening in that moment. There is a kind of logic to their anger. And what is that logic? Well, on its face, caring for the poor was central to Judaism. And it was customary to remember the poor during the holy days. And this is Passover. It seems for them, helping the poor by monetizing that very nice perfumed oil would have been better than wasting it and pouring it down the drain. And so that was, of course, their alibi. According to the logic of the religious people, this is an issue of economics. They, they seem like they have, um, I don't know, philanthropic aspirations, don't they? Here's the thing, because there's more to this. It, see, the rabbis understood this. Similar to what is taught in Proverbs 19.17, that whoever that is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his deed. See, help for the poor is good, but help for yourself when the Lord repays you is even better. These guys wanted God in their debt. Now, why would I say that? Look at verse 7. Jesus says, The poor you will have always with you, or always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. See, the logic of the Proverbs is that our good deeds produce an intimacy with God himself. And yet, when Messiah is with them, actually present in the room, they could care less. See, because they don't want God. They want the power of God in their debt. Otherwise, they totally would have supported this woman and even maybe even matched their extravagance. Can you see now their ulterior motives? It's like, uh, I don't know, like when these celebrities take these photo ops, like one of them is donating a check for $10,000, which is like 0.00001% of what they make. And they're donating it towards like, I don't know, the newest animal shelter or whatever their charity of choice is. And everyone just applauds them for their big hearts, right? No. The animal shelter 
was just an alibi. That action was totally self-serving. They don't care about stray cats, but their financial guy said that was the way to make the most of their tax laws and to increase likes on their social media, right? It was totally self-serving. In other words, there's more than meets the eye. There's a different logic shaping their choices, and that's what's happening in the story. These guys do not just gush about caring for the materially poor and working with them. Their moral justifications were all just a subterfuge. It's a ploy. And listen, what this is, is this is a warning for the generically religious heart. The generically religious heart wants the benefits of God. The cold religious heart wants status, an appearance of piety with God, good civic religion. But the religious heart, when God is actually present in the room, doesn't actually want God himself. Why? Because generic faith finds God useful, but does not find him beautiful. See, the indignation of these religious people is simply the natural outflow of that logic. No matter what their moral logic says about the poor, knowing and loving God was never the goal. Because when God showed up, they did not recognize him nor desire him. Because if they did, they would have fallen on their face or at least praised what this woman was doing, not got angry. Her actions that day were the only actions that made sense. And listen, this story is not only about exposing the motives of these religious people. It's about you and it's about me. You get it? Have you ever done, ever done anything really extravagant for the Lord? I mean, have you ever truly risked? I mean, with no other reason other than you just love him. And, and, and extravagance is like the only thing that makes sense in light of all that he has done for you and all that he's done for your children and your family. Or do you employ a kind of economic pseudo-moral logic to hide behind truly giving yourself fully to Christ? Let that question simmer in your soul. Let this text, the story, shift stuff around, you know, reorganize the furniture in your soul. That's what the story is wanting to do. Let it do it. Don't let it be business as usual. Just another Sunday. All right, so, so far we looked at the logic of these religious guys. So let's inspect a little bit more closely the implicit logic of the woman. And this is our second point. Now, the way that John Mark, the author, tells a story, it's, it's actually sandwiched in between two acts of betrayal. In fact, just right after this passage, we're going to see Judas conspire to have Jesus killed, which is very familiar. And so the question is, why are certain sectors of the people growing in disappointment with Jesus, Right? Why? What's everyone getting so disappointed about? It was because the people wanted the long-anticipated king. They're waiting for Mashiach, 
Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman oppressors. And by Jesus' teachings, although he purports to be this promised king from the Old Testament, it is becoming increasingly clear that Jesus has no plan to start a military revolt like they would expect of King David. So if he doesn't start the revolt, is he truly the king? Is this really the promised one of the Old Testament? Well, for this woman, there was no doubt that indeed he is the king. And in fact, his revolution is about to begin immediately. See, listen, every Jew knew from studying first and second Samuel, or first Samuel and first and second Kings that the rightful king of Israel must first be anointed by oil. We see that even, remember, with Samuel anointing David before he goes off with oil? In fact, the inaugural event for a revolution, for a revolt, was usually the anointing of oil. See, pouring oil on Jesus' head is not a random act. It is a ritual brimming with meaning. And although no one else has the guts to do it, not even the 12, this woman would come in and anoint Jesus' head. Why? This is her way of showing that she absolutely gets it and she believes in what he is up to. Jesus is the king. His kingdom is different. His plan is different. And she will indeed anoint the head of the king so that the kingdom of God, which Jesus had been saying is at hand, right? He's always saying the kingdom is at hand, can begin. She has faith in Christ. Now, she doesn't need to know or understand all the details to follow him. She just does. It's incredible faith. So the logic that interprets her anointing Jesus' head with oil is her firm conviction that he is who he said he is, the Savior King. Now, this does not explain the sheer volume and extravagance of the oil. I mean, for this woman, this clearly is not just this rote tradition. The fact that she's walking around with her life inheritance in her arms is crazy. One doesn't simply just walk around with an alabaster jar in their hands. That is something that you keep safely in the inner chamber of your home. And verse 5 confirms this uh, by saying that it's about a year's wages of oil. That's a lot of money. This is, let's say, $50,000 of expensive product. I mean, could you imagine if I, like, if I came home from work and uh, Amanda's like, hey, baby. I'm like, hey, girl. We talk to each other like that. And she says, hey, I have some news, so brace yourself. And she goes, you know that brand new, I mean, it's a 2017, but it's brand new to you, Ford Expedition, you know, the one that you bought me. You know, the nice one where you press the button and the seats heat up or cool down? Sweet. Well, I cleaned out all the extra dirty shoes and socks that our kids left under the seats and stuff like that. And then I sold it for cash. And I took that cash and I gave it to the church to pay for one salary of one staff member for a whole year. 
great. I mean, can you feel the extravagance of that act of generosity? Well, that illustration shows the magnitude of what we're seeing here with this woman's gift. You see, the logic of this woman was not only showing faith in Christ as the anointed king, it's showing her love for him. And here's the deal. It didn't feel like a huge sacrifice to this woman. This extravagant gift pales in comparison to what she believes that she has received from him. Her extravagance is the only response, the only logic that made sense to her in light of how she understands Jesus. She loves him. I mean, she would do anything for him. Indeed, giving her very life is a gift far too shallow to express the depth of affection and gratitude that she has for her Savior. She gets it. When the religious people look at this deed, their logic says, what a waste. They could have done more for themselves. But this woman gives her inheritance to Jesus and her logic says, what Jesus offers is so much more. I owe him everything. I will do anything to have him. I love him. She understands this act of extravagance pales in comparison to the extravagant love of Jesus. This is the only way you can understand this woman's decisions. And here's what I want you to know. Sacrificial devotion, extravagant devotion is never wasteful or insignificant. Think about your life. Think about your choices. What do they communicate? My experience is that you and I will employ moral logic, just like the religious people, and justifications, just like the religious people, to defend our lukewarm choices. We never just go nuts for Jesus. We never go nuts for him. And what a shame. What a shame. The legacy that we're passing on to our children is live your life and use generic Christianity to baptize and justify the decisions that you already made before you came in. But this text is calling us to absolutely just sell out to Jesus. Sell out to him. Does that feel impossible to do? Does that sound risky? Does it feel unstable if you love Jesus too much? Like if I love Jesus too much, I'm going to miss out on what I really want. Security, money, the way I spend my time, a relationship that I really want. I mean, do y'all feel that? If that's you, let me just finish the story with one final observation from the text. So this woman breaks in, pours $50,000 of oil to anoint Jesus, and the religious people scoff. What a waste. What a waste. They snort. And Jesus says, verse 6, leave her alone. What she has done is a beautiful thing. 
And then Jesus explains its true significance. How does this anointed one become the king? That's the question. Jesus says in verse 8, She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. You see the irony? Jesus becomes king by dying for his subjects. And the religious people said, what a waste. What a waste that a strong Messiah candidate will die as he predicted. What a waste this woman is pouring all of this oil on him, this fine oil. What a waste. What a waste. Jesus says, no, no. No, it's not a waste. None of this is a waste. If Jesus does not die, you can't join him in his kingdom. You're not good enough. You can't do enough good works. You don't have enough money to buy your way into this kingdom. Jesus had to die for you. And you are not a waste to him. Hear me, look at me. You are not a waste to Jesus. You're worth it. And Jesus does not regret extravagantly pouring out his blood for you more than an alabaster jar full for you. And I'm going to tell you that every week. Can you possibly dare to believe that? Your ability to be extravagantly in love with Jesus comes when you first understand his extravagance with you. And Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be told. And guess what? We don't even know her name. We don't know where she's buried. But you know what it says on her tombstone? A disciple who loved Jesus, who really really loved Jesus. And Jesus knows her name. And he knows your name. Amen? Amen.